Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast. I'm your host, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. So, Jonathan Anderson, you are Associate Professor of Art at Biola University, but currently on leave to finish up a PhD at UCL? Uh, King's College. At King's College, London. Okay. And uh, and it's a theology PhD, right? Theology, yeah. Theology and religious studies. Okay. But theology. And the arts. Yeah. And you're you're a working artist um, as well. You're a painter. You've done sound art. Sound art, you've done uh, some, some, not, some? Not a lot. Okay. All right. You think more painter than Yeah, that? I'm a yeah. painter. All right. Bit of sculpture here and there, but okay. painter. Good. So you're putting together, being a practitioner of the art, being a critic, art critic, art historian, so you're also a specialist in modernism, and then art theory through theological tradition. That's fantastic. Okay, so. It sounds like too many hats to be wearing all at once, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, this is how it has to work, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. When when you're given certain questions and certain problems that you don't know how to address, you, or at least for me, then I I I shift, and I I guess I've been I keep shifting to try to address those questions. In my experience, many Christians are nostalgic about the institutional support that the church used to be able to provide to the visual arts in, say, the great Renaissance masters, right, sponsored by the church in many cases. Now, for literature at least, the major institutional supporter of the literary arts is the university. And to a certain extent, that is also the case for the visual arts. And people within the visual arts and the literary arts are uncomfortable about this setting. So they feel like it can have a homogenizing, narrowing effect and that the dependence on the institution can create just the kinds of hierarchies that a politically active art is trying to move beyond. So what can the contemporary art world learn from the history of Christian patronage of the arts? Mm. That's a place to start. Yeah, yeah. It's a good cluster of questions, really. Well, on the on the first point about patronage, I think the art world is it's a little different than the literary world in the sense that the university provides the context for the research of art primarily. So art history and theory and so on, the academic discourse uh, about the visual arts very much happens in the universities and is fueled and funded by the universities and the various journals and so forth that kind of come out of the universities. But the art itself, the art world itself, has this massive market, the art market, that is funded not by the universities or patronized by the universities, but much more by museums and private foundations, Mm -hmm. huge collectors. uh, So, like, you know, the 
uh, Pinot Foundation or the Prada Foundation or the Broad or so on and so yeah. forth. These massively wealthy foundations really are driving what is happening. They, they are the primary patrons of what's happening in the art world, even more than the universities. In fact, the universities uh, sort of, in some sense, see it as their as part of their duty to critique and put a check on that. Okay. <laughs> so even though all of the artists... So the university institute would be the more benign institution here? In some sense, at least in the, the creation of the, and circulation of art. Though the, the study, the, the discourse of art is still very much located in universities and in art institutes and so forth. And that, it, that is a, an interesting relationship, really, because, because what's happening in the art market is very much framed intellectually and so forth by what's going on in the university but the two are in a conflict and competition all the time as well. So when you analogize to, say, Renaissance art, Renaissance European art, there's one way of thinking about that relationship of patronage with a very powerful institution yeah. that would say that, um, that it's precisely this tension yeah. that made Renaissance art the creative powerhouse that it was. Exactly. So it, there, there are limitations and there are traditions in place. There are these... Or these sort of not guardrails, but but these these constraints, these passageways, and it's only within those constraints that that creativity can flourish. But I don't get the sense that that's an argument that's being made in art theory today about the contemporary relationship between individual artists and wealthy institutions. Ah, yeah, is that it is productive? It's generative. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah, yeah. It, it, and so I mean, uh, yeah, or, or are there people making that that argument? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I think I think yes and no. That on the one hand, the contemporary art market is extremely generative. I mean, it is just it, it, it's there are so many artists working, and there are so many things going on that the kind of uh, narrative of art, in some ways, has scattered. It has it has pluralized mm -hmm. so much because there's so much going on. On the other hand, there is a a pretty strong critique to be made that the that market context builds its own ideology into the into the art so that there is a lot of money wrapped up in the in the arts uh, today in the visual arts so much so that a lot of theorists are talking about the financialization of art uh, where you know art is a investment it's a very lucrative investment today and those interests are shaping who who is getting paid attention to and what gets made and so forth. So I kind of I kind of want to say uh, this is probably the most artistically generative time ever <laughs> in some ways, but also is close it, it it makes some things much more difficult also. Like what? Well, I mean the to return to your question the church as patron is much more difficult and I think art with a within a liturgical setting or with those kind of overtly religious interests or concerns is much more difficult today, perhaps. Certainly than the time of the Renaissance that you're referring to, where, where there was a massive church patronage. Yeah. Today, there's, I think, very little of that. It has very much been displaced to the university as a site for the discourse, university and museums, and to the kind of art market as the 
sort of economic engine that patronizes right. that. Right. So the most audience. natural pathway for a Christian artist would be to work within this the art market, yeah. right? The yeah. contemporary commercialization, yeah. right? Yeah. And are there Christian artists doing that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And there's, I, I mean, I think I'm on your question of the the kind of nostalgia that some Christians feel for a a previous church patronage. I mean, I'm I'm all for that. I think I think there there is space for artists, uh, Christian artists, to be working for churches and to be patronized by churches. I think that's happening a lot more in the last ten years or so, and that's great. But there are also artists, Christian artists. Muslim artists, Jewish artists, so on, who are making really good and really s- smart work in the contemporary art world. And there's all sorts of, there's just so much to explore there and so much to do. That's great. I mean, one, uh, uh, that kind of pluralism that is, is going on affords affords lots of opportunities. It makes some things difficult, but affords lots of opportunities. Did that answer your question? Okay. Yeah, I th- yeah. so the pluralism is helpful because you've written this book. You've co-authored this book with the theologian William Dearness, Modern Art and the Life of a Culture, The Religious Impulses of Modernism. And the movements that you discuss in there aren't really characterized by pluralism so much, oh. right? So, you know, just to give a, to read a little excerpt from here. This is an art critic and himself a, a painter, Alan Capro. Capro, is that who Capro, yeah. yeah. So A painter and a performance artist. And a performance yeah, artist, yeah. yeah. So writing on Jackson Pollock, uh, while Jackson Pollock was, was active, he says, Pollock, as I see him, left us at the point where we must become preoccupied with and even dazzled by the space and objects of our everyday life, either our bodies, clothes, rooms, or if need be, the vastness of 42nd Street. Not satisfied with the suggestion through paint of our senses, we shall utilize as artistic media the specific substances of sight, sound, movements, people, odors, touch. Objects of every sort are materials for the new art, paint, chairs, food, electric and neon lights, smoke, water, old socks, a dog, movies, a thousand other things that will be discovered by the present generation of artists. And in his essay on Pollock, he explains how we get here, which is that in a, on a Pollock canvas, you see the painter in action. But where the canvas ends we have to assume that the painter's action continues beyond the canvas. And what does it continue into? It continues into everyday life. And that's where we encounter the dogs and the chairs and the food and and so on. And uh, the sense of American modernism that that I get is is a fairly unified rediscovery of the everyday as not only materials for, but venue for the fine arts. Something different is going on with yeah. the pluralism of contemporary art, right? Like yeah. we're not just being sent out beyond the canvas into the everyday. How would you characterize that that difference? Oh, we, I think that gets even more exaggerated in contemporary art. That it's, I think, in some ways, what Capra is describing here is the shift from modern art to contemporary art. Is this sort of open field where the the artistic medium is no longer closed, right? So mm-hmm. not just paint on canvas, but uh, dogs and 42nd Street and socks and uh, everything. Yeah. The, the medium is no longer closed. And in, in some ways, the ways that we regard the artwork or whatever is made is then really open. Like there's, no, there's not a, 
in the way that um, there were certain ways of reading art that naturally pushed toward Pollock, and this was kind of a, a kind of a progression as articulated by uh, Clement Greenberg and others, mm-hmm. and that how this makes sense as a kind of next logical step. What Capra is proposing is a sort of scattering of that argument into multiple different art forms and and ways of making sense of art. So I I think in some ways I can see how that would be feel like a closing of art, like an abandoning of the artistic traditions uh, could. I mean, you could take Capra to be saying that, a kind of abandoning of the great tradition, an abandoning of painting, an abandoning of earlier ideals. But I, I think it's it's a... There's still continuity, but a, an, an opening of that discourse from modernism into contemporary. Okay. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not a... a I, I know very little, have very little experience of contemporary art, and most of what I get is just through whatever comes through the Carnegie Museum <laughs> uh-huh. in, in Pittsburgh. But one of one form or movement within contemporary art that that I have found myself just really resonating with mm. um, is installation art that involves either video or audio or both. And there seems to be a lot of this yeah. these days. Mm-hmm. My first experience with this kind of installation art was a kind of like. Um, interesting like anachronic modernism where it was this Janet Cardiff installation Mm -hmm. at at PS1 in Brooklyn. This was like a long time ago, (laughs) you know, probably like 15 years ago, where uh, she had taken Thomas Tallis's Spem and Allium Motet for 40 Voices. And she had recorded each singer's voice and then um, isolated it and then plays and then sets up a speaker for each of the 40 singers in a room, in a circle, yeah. and you go in there and you're hearing Spem and Allium filling yeah. the room, but then you can approach each individual speaker and hear the exact yeah. um, part that that singer's singing. And, it's, and it seems to me there that, that we're not being sent out into the everyday world to see it anew and to experience, mm. to experience a, an epiphany of mm. it manifesting itself to us. Mm. We're actually being invited into you know, what, what Charles Taylor would call higher times. There's this experiential dimension that's, that's not the everyday. Yeah. And just to go a little yeah. bit farther, to, to think about what happens when you leave the canvas or, or the, the fresco in late medieval religious art that we encounter in situ in a church. It's a means for meditation. It has a liturgical context. What it's inviting the viewer into in that liturgical context is actually an elevated higher time, mm-hmm. right? That in in the Catholic tradition is going to be integrated with the Eucharist. And so you're you're invited into the space. And so I'm sensing this kind of impulse in at least this certain strain of contemporary art. And I'm wondering if you can place that yeah. and do you see that as a kind of departure from from the the impulses of modernism to return to this world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really interesting question. Well, I think the the idea of the museum, of the gallery, and, and by extension the museum, particularly the modern and contemporary museum, where where it's stuff that's being made now goes into a museum, right? Yeah. Which is uh, a, a departure from what the museum used to be for, which was sort of saving or retaining the past. The, what the muses had produced in the past. Whereas today, contemporary, we have modern art museums, contemporary art museums that 
I think the way to understand those is is as a setting aside a space for heightened attention to something. And that what gets attended to is all sorts of things. But one of the lineages that comes out of Capro and others that has been really influential is that uh, you're setting aside space and time for heightened attention to the things of everyday life, sometimes to things that are not of, of everyday life. It can be a sort of transformation of everyday life, everyday materials. And that does have, well, I'll say it two ways. It, it does have resonance with the cathedral in some ways. It's not entirely wrong that a lot of art theorists have referred to the modern museum as a temple or as a cathedral, a secular cathedral, because it does have some ability. It has some similarity in the sense of it is a special set-aside space for a certain kind of attending, maybe even a certain kind of worship sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I mean, I I don't put a whole lot of stock in the uh, modern museum as a cathedral, but at least there's as a set-aside space where something else happens, a higher time, a higher space, a, high, a heightened attention at any rate. Now, what happens in those in the that space, sometimes it is supposed to send you back into your everyday life looking at it differently, thinking about it differently, whether that is visually, aesthetically, or politically, socially, to be attuned differently to the world around you, the social relationships, the visual relationships, the the. Can you give like an an example of that of that working that, that, that you feel like is yeah that worked? Well, I mean a lot of a lot of art. Well, we'll take Warhol since uh, I'm talking about Warhol tomorrow, and yeah. have been thinking about Warhol, even though he's not you know working right now. Yeah. His essentially what he was doing was plucking. Images, especially images, sometimes objects, out of circulation and reprocessing them, representing them, and putting them putting them on display. Essentially, what he's doing with like uh, the uh, Marilyn images, Marilyn Monroe images, is lifting them out of the magazine circulation and mimicking the mass reproduction of them. So they flatten, they flatten, and he puts it he puts it on a on a canvas in the museum space as a sort of demonstration of this image reproduction sort of malfunctioning, flattening, evacuating the the person in that image. Maybe we we might say um, presenting her as a commodity, which is what the images of Marilyn Monroe, the photo where she appears singular in in the magazine, what Warhol puts on display is her as a, that photo as a sort of commodity, a packaged for consumption. She's a consumer product. And that's a haunting. I mean, once that sort of settles in, and once his sort of repetition, cruel repetition of Marilyn, once that settles in, uh, you return to all of the magazine photos differently. I do. I have, have a really heightened sensitivity to the ways that Images of people are packaged for consumption, and that that changes the way that I participate in those and consume those, and that that happens in all sorts of ways. Some that's a, a negative, critical way of doing it, but there are also positive, constructive ways of artists take. Well, the the example you 
mentioned, uh, yeah. uh, Janet Cardiff of the Spen in uh, Alium. I mean, those are those are she's just t- taking something that does exist in the world, speakers, a, an old score, and presenting it in a space that's set aside for attending to this this chorus of voices coming not from the chapel choir stalls, but from speakers, the same kind of speakers that surround us yeah. all the time. So the way that you just described Warhol's Maryland images, those were done as literally in the wake of her suicide, right? Yeah. And it makes me think of this book by Amy Knight Powell, Depositions. I don't know if you... You know that she's an art historian, and it's a it's a book that's equally about medieval art as it is about contemporary art. And one of the things that the deposition as a as a medieval uh, motif is you know the painting of the dead Christ, the dead Christ um, often you know being taken off the cross and lying in the Pieta, lying in Mary's arms. But she says that this is what sort of all art in a museum is. Like it's dead. Uh, like dead. it's being presented as dead. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what happened. It seems yeah. like that's what you're saying. War- Warhol's bringing about the truth of the death of Marilyn Monroe by this artistic reproduction. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. So I guess what that helps me to fine-tune in what I'm trying to ask is what really grabs me about these particular kinds of contemporary artists that they don't seem to be made for the museum. And they seem to... They seem to either want to recognize the, the artificiality of the museum, or or to yeah. like draw us beyond. And I think of yeah. a lot of like a lot of ecological art, right? There's a lot of ecological participatory yeah. installation art. Yeah. I mean, there's Andy Galsworthy who does these incredible sculptures from nature in nature. Yeah. I've only seen images of yes, them, but yeah. the idea is that like the photograph is. Yep only part of this and you're in nature. Ragnar Kjartansson, this Icelandic artist who does, he did an installation a few years ago in Pittsburgh at the Carnegie and and he's playing music in a band. Do you know know this? Yeah, yeah. But what you're being drawn into is not his band. You're being drawn into this vast Icelandic landscape behind him. Yeah. And that's, you're, you're, I I mean, I was trying, I didn't feel like I was in a museum anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And that seems to me to be different both from commercial museum art, like Jeff Koons or someone like that, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And different from this modernist impulse to like send us back into the everyday. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is, is, is that, yeah, yeah. Do, is that distinct or, or do you see this as sort of part and parcel of, of the same? Yeah. I, I mean, I see them all as uh, in conversation with each other, but they're, they're maybe in disagreement with each other Maybe there's continuity between them, but all in conversation. Because they're all using the... I mean, not all. Well, yeah, all of those examples are using the museum or the exhibition space to create a, an orientation toward things that you wouldn't have otherwise, right? Whether that translates back into the street or whether it takes you out of the street, so to speak. Yeah. Like with Goldsworthy, I mean, those are, those are amazing works, but nobody has seen them. <laughs> I mean, some of them, a few, yeah, a few of really. them are in stone and uh, have have survived. But all the ones in leaves, made out of leaves or ice or whatever, yeah. the photograph is all that anyone has ever seen, other than Goldsworthy and a, a handful of other people, his photographers or whatever. But those still seeing those photographs in the museum or in a book jolt. Gener- they 
they jolt enough. Maybe they take you out of everyday life. Maybe they send you back into the, the landscape with a different kind of sensitivity to it, mm-hmm. orientation toward it. So it is this framing of attention that remains continuous throughout so. this tradition. Okay. And that's, that's why I have a, it's that framing of attention. That's why I have a really open, loose definition of art. <laughs> because the art is in, I, I think, the art isn't in the objects that are presented. The art is in what those objects do to someone attending to them. So, in other words, art is a kind of ac- action. It's a, Good art is that which is arting. <laughs> as a mm-hmm. verb, and that verb, that arting, is a, is whatever generates a heightened attentiveness to the life we're living. I think that is good art. So there are there can be really fantastically crafted things that no one attends to, and they are not arting well. And there can be urinals uh, taken out of circulation and put in on a pedestal start raising for people really difficult questions about what is what do we mean by art what is the value that we attribute to these objects and if and if the if the thing is generating those kinds of questions then it is doing art at a high level <laughs> yeah okay so interesting is this, i mean so what you just said would be um, you could substitute poetry in there and this would be like kevin hart's theory of poetry oh, okay. um, but what he goes one step further and that is to say that what phenomenology seeks to do, it's poetry that's doing it. Ah, it's oh, art. Yeah. It's art that's doing it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And and to think in terms of phenomenology, then it strikes me that 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 is a, a pretty radically different understanding of what art does than the modernist understanding. Hmm. And. I would contrast that, like make the contrast, or I'm speculating here. I want to hear what you think. Mm-hmm. Make the contrast between epiphany and, oh. and theophany. So like here's a definition. Oh. Here's, here's, the, here's the quintessential modernist definition of epiphany. And it's Stephen Dedalus, you know, Joyce's yeah. artist, his alter ego, James Joyce's alter ego. So he's saying, he says, you know what Aquinas says, the three things requisite for beauty are integrity, wholeness, symmetry, and radiance. For a long time, I couldn't make out what Aquinas meant, but I have solved it. Radiance, claritas, is quiditas, whatness. First, we recognize that the object is one integral thing. Then we recognize that it is an organized composite structure, a thing in fact. Finally, when the relation of the parts is exquisite, when the parts are adjusted to the special point, we recognize that it is that thing which it is. Its soul, its whatness, leaps to us from the vestment of its appearance. The soul of the commonest object, the structure of which is so adjusted, seems to us radiant. The object achieves its epiphany. You could read this in two ways. One, you could read it phenomenologically, but the way that Joyce takes it and the way that the modernist tradition takes it is that it's all about our recognition. So we recognize. Once we recognize that this, and then the next step is our recognizing the next step, and then the... Yeah. And, and so epiphany is is very much about the subject um, attuning the subject's attention in such a way that it, that that enables epiphany to happen, and then the subject recognizes something about the subject. Yeah, right. Yeah, you yeah. recognize something about yourself. Yeah. Whereas you know Jean Luc Marion would would you know his counter narrative uh-huh. here would be that you're being recognized. Uh-huh. That uh-huh. each of the steps is is you know, what he calls counter experience. And so I guess maybe that's what I'm, what I'm, yeah, feel like I'm experiencing when I go 
go to the Ragnar Kjartansson exhibit, like I'm not, I'm not doing this. It's <laughs> it's it's being done to me, and it seems like that's what uh, you just that's uh, what you just expressed. Yeah, that's interesting. Say say a bit more about being recognized. So in in the first version, it's the art happens when the subject recognizes the world giving itself in some sort of full way. In the second one, it's the subject being recognized. Say a bit more about Well, about I mean, that. you know, Marianne goes to the theology of icons, where, as I understand it, Eastern icon painting typically reverses perspective. And the, mm. yeah. like the point of perspective yeah, is like... the vanishing point. The vanishing point is back in the painting rather than... Or, wait, how does it work? It, it's like uh, in the viewer's space rather than uh, yeah. uh, far away. Yeah. Right, so that's reverse. So, yeah. So that's kind of the the reversal. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, fascinating question. I mean, I guess in maybe this is sloppy or too synthetic, but I I want to somehow say yes to both of those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> is yeah. that okay? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, so I I th- I think that the what you read from Joyce, I know what that experience is, and I think mm-hmm. that is a big part of art for me. Is mm-hmm. is a recognition, sometimes all at once, sometimes over a long period of time, sometimes with learning that facilitates it, sometimes without the learning, mm-hmm. that there are these experiences of the the sheer wonderful givenness of something, that it's just a sort of miracle, <laughs> for lack of a better word, that this is here in exactly this way and that I am structured to receive it. And it, it, it just feels like gift. The world is gift. This thing is gift. And it's usually some sort of thing, some sort of particular experience that happens in these places that are set aside for heightened attention. Not always, but uh, that it happens in these places and it suddenly sort of opens up a larger recognition, a larger sense of gratitude toward things, sometimes a larger critical attitude towards things, as with Warhol. Sometimes a it just elicits some kind of a yes from me, an, an affirmation. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm thankful for this. And I think that's what Joyce is mm-hmm. getting at there, mm-hmm. and that a number of artists, I mean, Kandinsky basically talks exactly in that way, right. uh, that he has these experiences of the, the button in the puddle that is just like, the, the sheer wonderful givenness of the thing. So I want to affirm that and affirm all of that and say that that's a big, that's a, a really valuable way of thinking about what a lot of what's going on in contemporary art and has huge potential. But, I, you know, I'm a, uh, a theist. <laughs> the, I, I feel like that, that recognition of the givenness of the world is also a recognition of a giving and that, that I'm being uh, recognized, seen, given to in, in some sort of way that maybe maybe speaks of the Marion uh, mm-hmm. yeah. experience to some extent, but not everyone has, has that. So there's an impulse within contemporary poetry and I think in contemporary art to say that experience of givenness is apolitical. It's not bad. Oh, it can yeah. be a good preparation for yeah. for political action, but art can do more. Yeah. And art can be what, what's an, what's a good example of like successful political contemporary art? <laughs> is there is oh, there man. One? like yeah yeah? Can it be successful? Can it be successful? Yes, yes. And there's I mean 
art today is so political. The bad and the good art is is so political. I think where art is really successfully political and social, at least for me, is well, to take one example, is, is there's, a, there's always a kind of politics of vision, right? That when you're looking at another person, image of another person, that is politically charged always because there, it's, there are others. Uh, you're in relation to another in some sort of way, and that other person is framed, presented. And that presentation of another is intrinsically political, not necessarily bad, uh, like a, a, a oppressive politics, but it is there is a power dynamic being exercised between the the beholder and the behold beheld, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think a lot of contemporary artists are uh, using that or or taking that starting point and shifting the ways that we behold other people. Uh, usually with the arts, do, do, in the visual arts, doing it in a way that is askew. So uh, something you're used to seeing and that would otherwise be a more or less transparent giving of an image of another person becomes interrupted or skewed so that you become attentive to the way that the thing is being presented. What would be an example? Um, well, I mean, Warhol is like the grandfather of all this, right? But, but like... like, like Current art, current like, current art. People who are what would be a good example? Like if that? I go to the Whitney Biennial or the you know, Venice Biennial, yeah. what, what am I going to yeah. see this doing? Well, Venice, uh, yes, good. That's so Venice Biennale. The the thing that leaps immediately to mind, and there are loads of others that we could include, but the one that for some reason leaps to mind is right at the beginning of the Arsenale in the Venice Biennale. This last one. Christian Marclay had a work called, I forget what it's called, 50 War Movies or something. And it is all of these war movies that are set inside of each other, all running at once with all of the sound running at once. And where you have a single image, a single film moving, I would be sucked into the narrative and involved in the narrative, afraid of what's happening, concerned for the people involved, and so on. I would be in the narrative. But once you superimpose all of those on top of one another, all at once, with all of the sound, it just looks like a field of violence and sounds like a field of violence Mm. and starts to settle in, you know, I mean, we already knew this, but it is a visceral demonstration of it. We, our entertainment is very violent, (laughs) Why? Like what's, what is that about? What does that serve? What power does that serve? What ways does it shape us and shape our orientation toward other people, other countries, other whatever? And, and it, it, this is, that's one example that leaps yeah. immediately to yeah. mind. And that's not a picturing of people, as I was describing before, yeah. but a presentation of the world, even if it's an entertainment world. It's a presentation that is politically charged, and he presents it in a way that sort of jolts the movie screen. So H.R. Rookmaker uh-huh. uh, wrote this. <laughs> it was a reformed art critic, Dutch, Dutch reformed. He wrote this book, Modern Art and the Death of a Culture. Your book is titled Modernist Art and the Life of a Culture. Who, who would be Rookmaker's great like artist? Rembrandt? Who's the great reformed Artist for uh, yeah, 
Rembrandt, he, he cites approvingly on several occasions, lots of Dutch, you know, Dutch yeah. masters. But so, also through, I mean, you know, he talks very supportively of Georges Rouault, who's 20th century, uh-huh. and so on. So, so Rookmaker believed that modernist art was the death of a culture because it's, it's losing the form of man, right? Uh-huh. What you just described seems to me, Rookmaker would probably hate it, but it seems to me to be capturing... The form of man. What what would be a what would be a reformed theological appreciation of this uh, video work? Yeah, at the Biennale. Well, reform. or could could you make one? Like, could you yeah. mount one? Like, using Rookmaker's own intellectual and theological resources. Yeah, that's interesting. Sure, I think Rookmaker's concern with modern art. He has at least two twofold. Um, one is that it is dehumanizing. Um, that it estranges the person from his or herself and estranges us from each other by fracturing, violating the image, and so on. It doesn't present affirmative images of the of, of others and of ourselves. So he's concerned that it is dehumanizing in a lot of ways, and he's concerned that it is disorienting, epistemologically disorienting, that it kind of undercuts truth claims and beauty claims and all sorts of things. I think with uh, with Marclay's uh, video that I just described, um, in a way that could be dehumanizing and it's estranging, but in another way, it's a it's a parody of that. I mean, it's obviously meant to be affirmative. It, it, even if it's a negative print, it, shows us, it's a, it sort of shows us a field of violence, a kind of maybe manipulative entertainment that is that is toxic is showing us something that's toxic the point of that is to sort of register in ourselves i think something more affirmative humanly affirmative and more orienting there's a there's a no that <laughs> cries out i mean I, it seems like like you could say the exact same thing of guernica yeah, and Rookmaker hated Guernica. Yeah, and this is where I just disagree with yeah, Rookmaker. Okay. Yeah. I, I I think his art history is bad, but I think it's what he's objecting to the, that it, modern art is dehumanizing and it is disorienting. Those come from his very affirmative reformed theology the, that creation is good, the world is good, the the every single person is made in the image of God, all of those things. There are affirmations that I would affirm. The way that he sees modern art working is too I think is too negative. He he sees he's he maybe overlooks in a, a work maybe would overlook in a work like Garen in um well, I think he does overlook it in Guernica, but uh, ov- would overlook it in Marclay as well, that sometimes the negative, the negative print, what Warhol is doing, which he didn't, Rickmacher didn't care for, uh, what Picasso is doing a lot, but not always, is deeply human and deeply orienting, but it's by way of trying to jolt what is what is out of alignment, what is what is is wrong. Yeah. It's triggering a no, and the no is always tied to a, a yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it strikes me that, that to the extent that when contemporary art is predicated on a recognition of what we must say no to, that it's, it's going beyond the reframing of attention. 
and huh. and it's going beyond it in a way that I mean, if so, to come at aesthetics from another angle, mm-hmm. right, which isn't about like framing of attention and, and um, opening of experience and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, for Hans Urs von Balthasar, what is beauty? Christ is the form of beauty. Mm-hmm. It strikes me that Ruckmacher would have liked this, and but when you when you start to when you begin from that point, yeah, you be, that's that's a pretty narrow beginning because a it doesn't like you have to be prepared to recognize Christ as beauty. You have to be prepared to recognize the cross as beauty. It, re- it requires this, yeah. this complete uh, conversion and sanctification of the aesthetic sense. When you reappraise, you know, these war art, war art like yeah, this, yeah. are you coming at it from a Christological kind of aesthetic? Is that, is that how you're yeah. getting there by, mm. by narrowing? I mean, presumably Christian Markley is not, is he mm, not, not a Christian? Not so he would, have, he would have other reasons for for thinking about suffering yeah. and justice. Right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. Well, with with a christological approach to art, you you have Christ as beauty and as the the most glorious, the he, the heaviest thing, the most mm-hmm. important mm-hmm. thing in existence. But you also have a crucified criminal on the margins of the empire. Right. The emptiest thing. <laughs> the emptiest the, thing. Yeah, exactly. The extreme of kenosis. Exactly. Yeah. So that structure of the fullest, the fullness of things and the emptiest of things being held together in Christ, that gives us quite a range to work with. <laughs> That may be too sloppy. It's too sloppy. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're pushing back against my saying that that narrow to begin from there narrows things. Yeah. It's actually opens. As it's actually as capacious yeah. as it, as I it think could so. possibly be. Okay. I think. I think the yeah. It, I think it's it's the most capacious way of thinking about existence, mm-hmm. and includes the concerns of Christian Marclay, not to not to just baptize everything that's happening in the modern art museum or the contempt or the Venice Biennale or whatever. There are tremendous problems. There are tremendous violences and abuses. But I think a Christological approach to the art is is so capacious that I can find so much in common. And I know distinctions are really important and separations, but commonness is yeah. is important to me. Uh, commonness in conversation. And in meaning, I think I think there's just something in the person of Christ. There's something that we we all share. Yes. Uh, so in the the book, you and your co-author, you lay out two prior understandings of of secularism. Mm-hmm. Right? One, mm-hmm. according to Charles Taylor's mm-hmm. theory, one is secularism as the distinction between private and public. The other is a kind of institutional. Opposition between church and state, right? Yeah. Exercise, and then, but you say Taylor, and, a de- and a decay of belief, right? Yeah, and a decay that's of belief. Right. And, but then Taylor says that that the the one that most gets at sort of the current late late modern experience of of the secular is this what do you call secular three? Yeah, which is that the experience, even if you are devoutly religious, is that you are born into a world in which every belief is in question and pluralism is the primary experience. So it strikes me that that then to work as an artist consciously within the Christian tradition under the conditions of secularism three is very different from working as a Christian artist in 
in modernity, like even after the church patron is, is gone yeah. and everything. Can you give some examples of artists who seem to seem to grasp that this is a characteristic of faith in this in in a secular age in and they and they're working in that tradition in that way, trying to draw on the Christian traditions? Yeah, yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, I think this this uh, way of understanding as a preface to my mm-hmm. answer, <laughs> this way of understanding secular secularity is really helpful to me cuz cuz and it is really descriptive of what is going on in the arts today and well beyond the arts that mm-hmm. i don't think what we get is a a decline of belief of religion there isn't a, a death of religion there is just a fragilization of religion and that doesn't even and of of faith and that doesn't mean that all of us are fragile in our beliefs but it does mean that uh, whatever beliefs we hold, we have to hold while looking over our shoulder at a vast number of other options. Every position is contested. That's and, a great way of putting it. And that's the, that is the condition of secularity. And that doesn't mean, like I say, a, a decline of belief, but a, of one of mixed contested belief. And I think that is really descriptive of what's going on in the contemporary arts. Uh, that it is not a uh, a sort of um, galloping uh, secularism. Mm-hmm. It is a it is a discourse of contestability, contested beliefs, with a strong interest and longing uh, for belief <laughs> in one way or another, and that takes all sorts of different forms. So the the art world is full of people, full of people who have left one religion or another left mm-hmm. the church or are really nervous to identify with it. And that doesn't mean a, a sort of death of belief, but it means it's this kind of fragilization. And the way that those artists work through that is really interesting to me and really theologically charged. There's so much theology going on in, in contemporary art. But What's it, an example? Like who, who, who would come to mind? And who would come to mind? Yes, yes. So, so a, a few artists I'm writing about right now and thinking about, and and in bringing them up, uh, because of this sort of condition of fragilized belief, I I won't attribute any sort of clear faith to them, <laughs> right? Sure. But they're right. working. They're they're doing work that is theologically very significant. I think one uh, artist that I'm working on is named Chris Martin, or he's Belgian, so Martin, mm-hmm. and he was raised outside of Ghent in Belgium and uh, was raised Catholic and was a, uh, an altar boy. And his work is really a, a very careful, very smart, I think, meditation on human fragility, but also fragility of, of, of belief. Uh, so he has works. One of his famous works is called Altar, and it is the frame uh, of the Ghent altarpiece in steel. So it's an empty frame, mm-hmm. and it is always placed outside. So it's never in a museum. Mm-hmm. You, what you see through it, it is, in other words, it's always a window. Mm-hmm. You're always looking at the the world in front of you through the framework of the Ghent altarpiece, and it's this kind of. Maybe maybe we could read it as an evacuation of belief. Maybe we could read it as a as still a surviving aperture of Gentiltopies that we look through it. And the Gentiltopies is specifically about the redemption of all things, the redemption of the world. 
And so much of his work is about that. Um, artifacts uh, from Christian history that are put uh, on display in one way or another, usually very simple, as uh, raising all sorts of questions about contemporary theology, contemporary Catholicism. There's another artist I'm writing about uh, uh, named Andrea Butner, who's German, who's very interested in Franciscan theologies of poverty. She's very interested in Therese of Lisieux uh, and the, her notion of the little way. She collaborates with monastic communities of nuns and makes has this work that is just marvelous meditation on a kind of poverty, a kind of open-handedness, where one, find, one finds herself in deficit before others, before God, before the world, and sees that deficit as something positive and aff- affirmative. To find oneself in deficit is not bad. So you've just described a couple of artists whose art is, you don't know, you need to know anything about them, but you look at it and you route, it's posing questions about religion and, and mm-hmm. secularity. It strikes me though that there like there are other many other contemporary artists for whom the critical argument depends a good bit on biography. Ah, uh, yeah, and modernist artists too. I mean, like it seems to me that Andy Warhol's religious paintings, even his religious paintings, we would interpret those very differently if we didn't know that he was yeah. raised in the Byzantine Catholic Church and that he w- went to church multiple times, yeah. went to mass multiple times a week, especially in his later life yeah. when he was painting these. Yeah. Is this a characteristic of like <laughs> the age of secularity three that artist biography becomes an essential aspect of thinking about religious art or art in general? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. On the one hand, yes, biography becomes more important because the iconographies become less secure, right? So, you know, if you um, go into a, a, a 15th century or 16th century church, you don't really have to know much about the artists that made them. It might help a, a bit here and there, like to know what Michelangelo was up to and like what he was thinking, who he was talking to, what he was reading. It helps charge things up a little bit, but the iconography is stable enough that there are other precedents that you can read it with, so to speak. Whereas once you once the iconographies become contested and loosened and disappear in a lot of instances, or become tied up in other contexts, like with Warhol's Last Supper, there's a stable iconography that is in a different context that makes it really unstable, <laughs> right? So where do you go? How do you, how do you stabilize that? Where do you go f- to stabilize the meaning? So thinking through artistic tradition is is not going to get you very far when you get into the context of... Could. I mean, on one hand, you know, if Warhol adopts uh, an image from or adapts an image from Leonardo, which is actually a few removed, steps removed, but when he adapts that, the Leonardo doesn't just go away and the Last Supper doesn't just go away. That stays in in place and needs to be accounted for. It needs to be accounted for in stronger ways than it has in the literature on Warhol, I think. But there are other contexts. Uh, and so it's sort of like a it comes into this constellation. I, I sort of think about interpreting art as a kind of there are a constellation of things 
that create context for the work. And those co- different constellations can take priority or be, be in play. Some can be ignored and so on. And artist biography is one of those constellations. And it's, you're right, with modernity, the artist biography becomes more and more important. Or if not the artist biography, the artwork's biography, the backstory, mm-hmm. right? Knowing that the artist took this from this thing and did this to it, like Chris Martin that I talked about. You have to know backstory for so much of his work because it's that is he's doing something and you kind of have to know what that story is and then the work starts to do something. But artist biography is only one of those points in the constellation and sometimes not even the most important. So it's good, it's good to, I mean, artist biography will tell you a lot, but we can't put too much stock in it. It's more a question of how the work, ultimately all arguments have to be made from how the work works in some kind of a context. So like with Warhol, I mean, yes, he's from Byzantine, Catholic upbringing, but man, it's not. It's, that doesn't resolve things because there's so much else going on in his work and in his life and the way he speaks, and you can't ever take him at face value. So to take another example, I don't know if you're familiar with this artist Matt Clayberg, painter, mm-hmm. contemporary painter. He paints his his paintings are. He has a very specific, you know, iconography that he sticks to, which are these concentric arches made of broad bands of, of color. Yeah. And um, he does this in all kinds of scales. He has probably painted 5,000 concentric arches by now. <laughs> and he's exhibited all over the country and collected in, in a lot of museums and private collections. It just so happens that I know biographically that, that he's not just a practicing Christian, but like a very thoughtful and well-informed one. Mm. And so when I see those arches... First of all, I love them. They really yeah. speak to me, and I want to dwell in that. Yeah. I want to be brought into the in, into this arch. But for me, it, it, that it is that little yeah. absent box in Andre Rublev's The Trinity, yeah. Icon of the Trinity, oh. right? I mean, that's what he's <laughs> clearly that's what he's doing. But if I didn't know this yep. biographically, that's right. Um, I would probably still like these, but I would think of them, yeah. to me, it would speak to me more in the way that like, I enjoy yoga and feel like it, it brings me into yeah, a yeah. nice space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's going on there? And the, they're, um, yeah, those are great paintings. And, and I, I'm with you. Like knowing, making that association suddenly causes them to really resonate, really do something else. And I'm okay with the with the fact that those are that those are meaningful to me in that way, even if I have to know some backstory to get there. And also even if another critic next to me could say, that's not what those paintings are about. Those paintings are about XYZ. And we could argue about that. Like I'm okay with that being a kind of soft reference that becomes harder because you actually can appeal to the artist and say, there's something going on in the artist that that causes me to put more interpretive weight in this direction, even if it's not final. It never fully, his paintings never fully resolve into this, this has to be Rublev's uh, Trinity <laughs> or, or the, or the, it, they don't, they never fully resolve. They always stay open and that's, that's okay. I don't know. How do you feel about that openness, interpretive openness? Oh, I mean, I, I feel great about it. Um, <laughs> 
it just it, it for me it's like this interesting counterfactual. Like, what if I would I love them as much if I, yeah. if, I if I didn't know that? Um, but then, and just, it's okay to say not. No, I wouldn't. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it may be the case. But to kind of just switch gears on the same thing, though, yeah. what do you make of the iterability of of his oeuvre? Oh, I mean, it, like you know. Since he made this, like he used to be a portrait painter, yeah. and since he made this switch, like this, as far as I can tell, this is what he does. Yeah. And each painting then is an iteration mm-hmm. on the same form. And, you know, where where does that kind of iterability, iterability of presence, like Warhol's iterability is about, in part, a commentary on the evacuation of presence and yeah, images. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet, this yeah. is sort of the opposite. Yeah, the opposite. That's really interesting. That's a really interesting reading of his work. I mean, I, I don't, I haven't spent enough time with his work and no time with him. So I'd, I, I'd be, I'd really like to talk to him actually. So I'm not quite sure, but the iterability could signify multiple things. I mean, on the, on the one hand, there could be some sort of a problem that he's just working out, whether that's a formal problem or a conceptual problem where one gives way to the next, gives way to the next. It could be this way. It could be that there are just multiple of these passageways, multiplying mm-hmm. the passageways, so to speak, is important uh, for one reason or another. That kind of system that he has of the reiterating stripes has long precedence in contemporary art as well. Back to Frank Stella and Saul LeWitt, where there there is a kind of formula that's set up or a rule that's set up at the beginning, and the painter... So it's there's a conceptual starting point, and there's also a kind of formal starting point, a sort of system. And you embark on each painting with those two things in place. It's a passageway, and there's a kind of formula for how the stripes will proceed. It can be an open formula, but there's a kind of plan. And then each painting is a process of working those out, and you sort of arrive at something, and then you do it again. So it's maybe less a a matter of, I want a lot of these uh, for a whole show or something, as much as it could be a a doing it again. Speaking again, uh, let's, let's think through this passageway, through this visual formula, formal system, and do it again and see how it turns out. Do it and would again. you say practically and theoretically that's distinct from what Warhol's doing in, in a lot of his repetitions? There, with Warhol, there's actually, that's pretty similar. Oh, okay. um, that he has he has this kind of conceptual rule and formal rule, and he just keeps running things, or he kept running things through those systems. It's the portrait of a dead celebrity painted in these uh, lipstick and peroxide colors or in white or whatever and run it through this reiterative process. So in some ways, it's conceptually similar, but you're exactly right that I think they do something different. Warhol's is about a kind of violence of repetition, uh, whereas Clayberg seems to be a recitation. It's repetition as Mm. a kind of meditative recitation, a slow, I don't know, prayer could be. Because there are lots of ways to repeat things. Sometimes they're violent and emptying. Sometimes they're ennobling and filling. What is the theology of spatial relations? <laughs> You've taught a course by this title. Oh, yes, yes. A fascinating class. Uh, so what we did for that class was read various... Co- we went kind of historically and read various cosmologies, uh, either by philosophers or scientists, 
that we're putting forward some kind of a spatial model for understanding existence. And then we looked at artworks from similar time periods or, or that had some kind of correspondence. So the basic idea, the basic idea was that we think in spatial terms about all sorts of things. We talk about human relations in social in spatial terms. We are very close. We've grown distant. She's smothering me. Whatever. <laughs> They're very uh, spatial. We talk about um, economics in terms of bubbles and collapses and rises and falls. And, and we think of those things as very spatial. And we position ourselves in the world in one way or another spatially. And there have been all these wonderful kind of spatial models for that, whether you know, what is, what is the cosmos? Is it a plenum? Is it like a, a, a fabric? Is it a, a series of concentric circles? And so on. Or concentric spheres. So we would read those things and then think about art, visual arts, as a way of working through spatial thinking in a really tactile way. So the big question of the course it was something like, is art visual art deeply important to us, not just in terms of the symbol, the symbolic functions it has, but in the way that it presents a world as a spatially kind of coherent and organized system. So the space of an icon is a different kind of world than the space of a giotto or the space of a, a Baroque hole in the ceiling or, or than a, a cubist painting. And those, those are all at a really foundational level, maybe, ways of, of thinking our way around in the world. So it was trying to read art in those ways, setting aside some of the symbolic functions and just reading the spatial structure and coordinates of, a, of artwork. It's a fascinating class. I bet it was. <laughs> fascinating. I learned so much from it. I never wrote much from it, which I, I need to at some point. But, but it strikes me that your, your own painting is dealing very much with... Uh, oh, yeah. You know, spatiality, and you're thinking through yeah. philosophical concepts of space and dwelling in your painting. Yeah. Was that, were you doing that? Were you painting at the same time as this yeah. class? Mm -hmm. or? Yeah. And painting and, some of my most important paintings during that time as well. What do you think of as your most important painting? Oh, <laughs> I think the the impasse series is probably is pretty central to my thinking about as my thinking as an artist. That can't always be mapped onto my thinking as a writer or whatever. And you can these you can see these on your some of these on your website. Yeah. They're, mm -hmm. they're images, and in many cases, it's a kind of realistic painting of some kind of access point or passageway or doorway. Yeah. And then in front of it, there's either an intradiegetic obstacle like a traffic barrier. Or there's an extra diegetic obstacle, like a big swab of paint. <laughs> paint. That is a is a wonderful description of of them. Yeah, yeah. They started that series started with this. Um, I was doing hallways and passageways that were because it's a representational painting, opening into something. So you look at paint on canvas and you think hallway, doorway, passageway, because of how it's handled, that uh, the space opens up beyond the surface of the paint. And I was interested in giving spaces that, where you didn't have a clear place to go. So there was this experience of opening and closing at the same time, or offering and withholding. 
which is maybe partly just sort of my youthful longing. <laughs> but also was, I, you know, I was reading lots of uh, Heidegger and uh, so on, and, and uh, Derrida at the time, and it, it was this, um, I was interested in language and, and materiality as legitimately offering and withholding because it couldn't deliver full presence of something. So these paintings are always a, a kind of, mud on canvas that legitimately offer another space, a hallway in Spain, a chapel in Italy, whatever I was painting, but also don't ever can't fully deliver those things. So that's how I started, where there were obstacles, as you say, it's sort of in the painting. And then I sort of increasingly started investigating the painting itself as the surface itself as doing both of those things. So I would do things like, well, the first was I decided, I did a painting of a chapel called Curtains, where it was this space, but was also, it was a, a chapel with a gate that was under renovation, so there was a curtain, a makeshift curtain uh, strung up behind the gate, and you look over the curtain, and there's nothing to see there. The crucifix had been taken down. There's light shining in from a window that's really lovely, but you can't actually see through the window, so there's this kind of place to go. And it just wasn't done as a painting. So I decided to do the same painting again at a smaller scale and bolt the two paintings together as one thing. And that that painting was like a, as you look at it, each of the paintings offers that space, but because it is, there are two, you're, you're sort of constantly shuttling between them. It's sort of like saying something very deliberately and then saying it again in exactly the same way. And once you repeat yourself like that, once you repeat yourself like that, once you repeat yourself like that, it draws attention to the, to the language, to the, the meaning. And I was interested in affirming both of those things. So then, as you said, the, there are globs of paint. That also is part of that series where I would put down a, a kind of brush stroke on a panel, usually, as a first kind of interaction with this surface and then paint a representational scene around that glob of paint. So even though it looks like a defaced representational painting, it's actually just one layer of paint with two really different sort of rationales for handling the paint. One as mark on surface, one as representational space. <laughs> and from there, it sort of goes into the construction series and so forth. But it's that same idea of spaces that offer and withhold, give and obstruct. It's really profound. It's, and, it, and it sums up, I mean, for our listeners, go to the website, look at these, because they, they really do. Meditating on these paintings, I think, sums up a lot of what we've mm. talked about. Mm. Who is your, just to close, who is your favorite, who's your go-to contemporary artist? Like who, who, who do you keep returning to? That's a good question. Well, at the moment, because of my writing, I'm, I keep returning. I'm writing about them because I can't get them out of my head. Chris Martin, Andrea Butner, okay. but I've already mentioned them. An artist, an LA-based artist named Tim Hawkinson. I've been interested in him for ages, and his work has been poorly written about, I think, and I, I just, I have a book in me that is about his work. And he just never goes away for me. <laughs> so I keep returning to his work, uh, which I think is very profound, very playful and lighthearted and profound. 
let's see, depending on the issue or my mood or something, if it's Lamentation, uh, Doris Salcedo is just wonderful. Teresa Margolis, that I mean, those artists are doing lamentation in a in a very profound way. Let's see, uh, I I I really like a, an artist that I've written some about, a guy named Francis Alice, who works in Mexico City. Uh, I think he's doing some really interesting, important work. That's a a short list. <laughs> Jonathan Anderson, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Thank you.